Welcome to Food Marketing Nerds, your weekly serving of marketing advice and industry insights with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. What is up, FM Nation? Today we are chatting with Margaret Fortner, head of growth at the digitally savvy hydration mix company, Hydrant. The company has thrived as a direct-to-consumer brand, so much so that they've even recently dabbled in the retail space. Hydrant is as data-driven as companies come, which has really helped them dominate in the world of e-commerce. As head of growth, a big part of Margaret's role is to help the company make sense of the sales and marketing data they have, making sure important learnings are taken into account throughout her team's ongoing efforts. Looking at their digital advertising, Hydrant may have 50 or more different ads running at any given moment, testing and uncovering which levers to pull to deliver the highest ROI. And in this episode, you're going to learn how to adapt the creative review process for rapid iteration, what incentives convert interested leads into buying customers, why you need to update your approach to split testing, and plenty more. Just a friendly heads up, in a couple sections of the conversation, we get a little more into the weeds of data analysis than we usually would, but those parts are relatively short. So if that's not your thing, bear with us, because there's plenty of practical insights around performance marketing that are applicable to all food and beverage brands with a growing digital presence, D2C or otherwise. So without further ado, Margaret, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So what is your background story? What led you to your current path at Hydrant? So I've actually been almost wholly on the agency side of things prior to joining Hydrant, really focused on kind of performance marketing, growth marketing, very data-driven, programmatic, buying across search, social, display, video, everything like that. I did actually work at a Major League Baseball for a year on their performance marketing team, essentially serving as the in-house agency for the clubs for direct response ticket sales. But outside of that, really focused on kind of direct-to-consumer, most recently e-commerce agency performance marketing. So that's what I was doing. And ultimately, the team at Hydrant was looking to build out the growth team to really take things kind of to the next level on our direct-to-consumer e-commerce side. So they reached out. And I'm a big fan of you know the health and wellness and fitness space and just saw the excellent team and product that were in place. So it was a really awesome opportunity. It's been a great experience so far. So for anyone who's not familiar, can you tell us a little bit more about Hydrant, the product? Yeah, definitely. Hydrant falls into a category that's called oral rehydration solutions. Essentially, it's a term for an electrolyte drink mix that you pour into water and it hydrates you more quickly and more effectively. So with Hydrant, that's really our core product. It's our hydrate mix, as it's now called. We released our second product line in September of 2019, which is now referred to as our energy SKU, which contains 100 milligrams of caffeine and 200 milligrams of L-theanine. So still hydrates you excellently. It's what I drink in the morning before I work out, but it also gives you that little boost, the same amount of caffeine as a cup of coffee. Then as of last week, actually, we just released two new product lines. So our Hydrant Immunity line, which contains too many vitamins to really list quickly. <laughs> also that core you know, mix of optimized electrolytes, which are in all of our products. And then our no added sugar product, which is really focused on people who want to live keto-friendly lifestyles or have other health needs that require lower sugar. So same benefits of electrolytes and everything, just uh, zero grams of added sugar and less than 10 calories per serving. So... Basically, we are trying to be your one-stop hydration shop because there are just so many positive health benefits of being hydrated. So just trying to bring hydration to the masses with some other benefits as well. Is it recommended to mix the energy and the immunity for like a super cocktail? I haven't personally tried it, but that's a great idea. I might have to do that (laughs) right after this. So in terms of performance marketing, what qualities or characteristics make for a great head of growth? I think in performance marketing nowadays, and I say this to a lot of people who are looking at getting started, being very data-driven and comfortable with data, both kind of the capturing of it, the slicing of it, and the analysis of it is super crucial, regardless of 
what platforms you're going to be focused on. There's just so much data that's readily available that you just want to be able to take advantage of it. I think the companies that are doing well, whether it's agency brands, anything like that, are the ones who are capturing all the data that they have available, making it as easy as possible to analyze it, and then taking the time to do that analysis and take actions off of it. So I think being very comfortable with both qualitative and quantitative data analyses is a crucial piece. And then this kind of sounds like the flip side, but the other piece of it is also being able to think creatively, both in kind of the classic and non-classic sense of the term. Especially when you're thinking about channels like paid social nowadays, creative is so crucial to ultimately scaling up a program efficiently and effectively. So being able to kind of take a look at what's worked and what hasn't, both for your brands and other brands, whether directly in your space and otherwise, and identify the more creative components that made them tick. I think that that's super crucial. And then also just thinking strategically, creatively, if that makes sense, like being able to come up against a problem and think through a couple different solutions. So I think it's really that marriage of comfort with data and the ability to kind of think creatively across a couple spectrums that really drives success for anyone at any level of growth marketing, ultimately. And so with all the data that's available and assuming not everyone in the company is probably as data savvy as the e-commerce performance marketing team, when you're sharing data out, how do you distill that down to say a creative team in a way that makes an impact? Taking the example of the creative team specifically, we have structured the way we kind of run our ad campaigns to have all of our ads tagged with a ton of different dimensions that describe essentially what the ads are. So then we basically aggregate all of that data into tables that kind of break down on the lines of those dimensions. So an example dimension would be, what's the color of the background? So essentially, the creative team has a dashboard that's set up for them that tells them what's been the top performing for whatever range of time they're looking at on all these different kind of areas. So they can find, all right, when I'm creating a new set of ads, blue backgrounds have been performing the best with this specific product, with this amount of text and this length of ad if we're doing something with motion. So I think trying to create data visualizations that are going to be as actionable as possible, I think is really crucial because what's going to be interesting and actionable for one team might not be interesting and actionable for another. So I think that's really how we've focused on laddering it out and also just working really closely with the people on each of those teams to figure out what's going to be most useful for them. So in terms of performance, whether it's this background performing the best, what KPIs or data points are most important to you as the head of growth to say that this is the highest performing combination of attributes? Here at Team Hydrant, we are very direct response focused. So it's pretty much always going to be, you know, customer acquisition cost or ROI, but to make it more I don't know if interesting is the right term, but to make it more impactful for the other teams, we'll also track things like, you know, click-through rate, engagement rates, view-through rates, everything like that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when I'm making a decision about whether an ad's been impactful or not, it's really focused on kind of those core downstream metrics of revenue, ROI, customers acquired, and customer acquisition cost. So I'm not sure if you've experienced the change at all, but with the new product line launching in Walmart, does that influence your role at all in the types of new customers Hydrant is trying to acquire? outside of e-commerce or is that kind of a separate department almost? I think there's a bit of a TBD there, to be honest. The rollout nationwide is still somewhat happening. It's not like with online where you just flip a switch and suddenly everything's live. It takes time for things to roll over. We are starting to see some spikes in areas where we know we opened up. I think we're expecting to see a positive impact on engagement across all of our different channels. If people have seen a brand in store, they're going to recognize the name or the logo or whatever it is a bit more. So there's going to obviously be a positive impact across our channels there. 
So I think the conversations we've been having with our retail team is figuring out, A, how can we use some of our kind of data-driven best practices online to drive their tracking offline through things like coupons and understanding what's actually working in retail. And then online, it's figuring out how can we separate the lifts that we're seeing from retail versus the lifts that we're just naturally seeing as the brands grow. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I think it's going to be an ongoing project in close collaboration with our retail team, but we're excited about kind of the synergies that we can have between retail and e-com, both from a performance standpoint and from a data standpoint and strategy standpoint. Yeah, there's a lot of connecting the dots that it seems like have to be made with trying to connect the online sales or any jumps from potential exposure through a physical retail versus e-com. If you figure it out, let me know. <laughs> Will too. So in terms of the way that you guys market and build your customer experience, what's the biggest thing that separates Hydrant from the competitors like Gatorade and Powerade? It's a great question. First of all, we kind of think of it as falling into two categories of competitors. So you know, you've got your legacy analogs, like the brands you just called out. And then there are obviously others who are more focused on the e-commerce direct-to-consumer space. I think from a brand and a product standpoint, what really sets us apart is our commitment to science and just really relying and putting our best scientific foot forward. So our co-founder, John, he's our Oxford scientist that we talk about all the time. And he's just really product obsessed and ingredient obsessed and you know, always sharing. He's kind of like a mad scientist to some degree, always sharing like the latest thing he's working on, what he's excited about. So we very much focus on kind of the science of things and all over our site, it's all just pushing our ingredients forwards, which has been especially exciting now that we have all these new ingredients in our immunity products. So I think it's the science backing. We also made the decision to rely on real fruit juice powder in our product instead of using synthetic colors, artificial sweeteners, anything like that. So we've gotten a lot of feedback from customers that it presents a very different taste experience than a lot of other competitors within the space. So whether it's people not liking a stevia aftertaste or thinking that it tastes more genuinely like whatever fruit is actually within the product, I think that's been a very positive outcome for us. So that's really kind of the product and brand side of things. I think focusing more on my growth realm and how I think about it, a lot of our other even direct-to-consumer competitors in the space grew in retail and Amazon first, whereas we really focused on growing our e-commerce and really direct-to-site first. So I think that gives us some degree of an advantage just because... We know our customers really well from both the qualitative and quantitative standpoint. When someone comes in through Amazon, Amazon ultimately owns that data. When someone comes in through Walmart, Walmart owns that customer. But when they come to you, you have their email, you can learn about them, you can re-engage them in a much more cost-effective way. So I think that sets us up well for me, targeting and growth standpoint, and also really a personalization and customization standpoint, which is super crucial for success in marketing across any channel that you're working in. And so aside from the differences in the product, I'm curious, in your experience, do you think most CPG brands could benefit from hiring head of growth? Or is that role particularly beneficial to direct-to-consumer brands primarily? I haven't worked as much in non-direct-to-consumer brands, so it's hard to say. But I think every brand should really think about having someone who's leveraging data to make strategic decisions focused primarily on revenue growth for a brand. So I guess it really comes down to how you define head of growth. So I think the function of using data to work cross-functionally and make revenue-focused decisions is something that's ultimately a benefit for any brand, regardless of whether they're direct-to-consumer or not. I think the day-to-day functions of what that role is could differ depending on if they're direct-to-consumer or not. Currently, we're a small team. I spend a decent amount of time kind of actually in platform, you know, pulling the levers and everything like that. Whereas if you're in a you know, traditional CPG role, I'd assume you'd be doing less of that. 
as head of growth, you're obviously responsible for driving revenue. It seems like when you're split testing and kind of on the forefront of what creative is going out there, is there something that has to be ingrained within the company DNA to really enable you to do your job successfully? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of credit to our co-founders and how they ultimately built out the team kind of from the beginning. You know, we have a couple of core values and one of those is data-driven DNA and something that is discussed with everyone that we hire, regardless of what role they're coming into. And it's just something that our co-founders have been really focused on. I think they just did such an excellent job building a strong foundation from day one and making sure that we were tracking everything as much as we can and making sure that when we see a result, we're ultimately focused more on the process that led to that result than necessarily the result itself, because processes are a lot more replicable than outcomes. So I think really just the core focus on data-driven DNA, and I know everyone probably says that they have a data-driven DNA, but I've worked with a lot of different brands, you know, especially having been on the agency side historically, and I can say genuinely that there's a true commitment to it on our team. So I think bringing in everyone across every department and having them commit to the idea of a data-driven DNA ultimately makes my job a lot easier when I'm having conversations with people who are in traditionally less data-focused functions because we all kind of come in with an idea of what's going to be most useful to ultimately make a decision. And I just think it makes conversations and decision-making processes a lot easier. I don't know if there are parallels between uncovering an insight company-wide or if it's learning from A-B testing, but what does the feedback loop typically look like when you have a data-driven learning to make sure that that learning is taken into account on future work? I think it kind of depends on the scale of the learning. If it's a small creative win, like we see, oh, these new ads that we launched that have squiggles and ingredients in them. And it sounds like I'm being facetious, but I'm actually being very serious. People are responding really well to these ads with squiggles and ingredients in them. Then that's something where I'll just quickly powwow with our creative team and say, hey, I'm seeing this. Can we turn around more of these? And then we iterate on and we turn around more of those and just test and see if that result is something that's completely replicated or if that was just kind of a one-off. However, if it's something like, let's say we tried a new strategy for rolling out a broader sale, That's something where we'll sit down, come up with a kind of quick recap report, focusing on what the outcomes were, how this benchmark versus prior times that we'd run sales, what we had changed versus the last time, and then have a broader cross-functional discussion with all relevant stakeholders and say, all right, do we agree that this thing that was different this time ultimately led to this more positive or more negative outcome that we saw? And if it's a positive one, then we say, all right, We're going to do this moving forwards and see if the results hold. And if it does, then we can kind of consider that a process that we should implement moving forwards. So I think it really goes back to a lot the focus on process versus outcome to some degree. And I think another thing that's crucial is making sure that things are replicable. Because if if you make a change and you see a significant shift once, that's valuable. But really, you need to see it a couple of times and as controlled an environment as possible to really feel confident that whatever shift you made is yielding that outcome that you saw. So in terms of testing ad creative, whether it's more squiggles or less squiggles, is there a right number of variables or ads to test at one time? I think it really depends on your segmentation and your scale. So obviously, the more that you spend during a given period of time, the more you can test because you're going to get to a statistical significance more quickly. I think it really, the way I always think about it is, Am I limiting things enough and getting enough scale on the number of variables that I have that I can ultimately hit a point of static within a reasonable period of time? So I think segmentation also really comes into key there. I don't want to throw out a specific variable number, but ideally you're only testing one variable at once. So let's say that 
thinking of the components of a Facebook ad, you know, you've got the image or the video, you've got headline description, you've got the landing page, you've got the call to action, and you've got the audience. Ideally, you only want to test one of those at once because if you're testing multiple, then it becomes really hard to break down. Recognizing that there's no such thing as a fully controlled environment in marketing because people are involved and human psychology is not something you can really control. But you want to try to control the environment and hold it down to one variable as much as you can within a given segment, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. What does statistical significance mean within the context of a Facebook ad test? Is that a certain mass of audience reached or a certain number of results or budget spent? Yeah, there's not really a hard and fast number. And it really depends on how broad the range in outcome is. So let's say variant A is winning 51% of the time and variant B is winning 49% of the time, you're going to need to have a lot more results, whether it's impressions, it's spend, it's clicks, it's conversions, whatever it is. You're going to need a lot more to feel pretty confident that variant A is the winner. Whereas if you're seeing a 80-20 split or something like that, then I think you can feel a lot more confident in that results early. Sorry, that was a really bad way of explaining it. But I think a lot of it kind of depends on a combination of the scale and the difference. And there are times where you could spend a million dollars on something and get a 50-50 result, and that's not going to be statistical significance. So I think it's something that's hard to really define, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. I'm not sure if it's new hires or even people outside of the department who are looking to grab onto a specific process or a specific answer to that question, which I fully agree with you. I don't think it's really difficult to say you'd spend $1,000, you look at these variables and then make a decision because it's just more dynamic than that. Is there any challenge or do you have to look for people with a certain mindset to explain that process of finding statistical significance that it's not always a perfect linear process? Yeah. One of the main things that we screen for when we're hiring people is kind of against those core values. So I think when we brought people onto the team, there's some commitment to things like data-driven DNA, which ultimately makes people kind of want to learn about these sorts of things. But I also have to recognize that talking about statsic when it comes to minor variant testing in growth marketing is not going to be most relevant to everyone's job on a day-to-day basis. And you know we're a small team. So I think it really comes down to picking where it's important to talk about these things. And ultimately, kind of my job as a head of growth is to distill the most important information in the most digestible way possible. And I'll say, rarely is statistical significance in multivariate testing the most important information in the most digestible way possible. So when it's going you know, cross-department in these sorts of discussions, you have to, I don't know if simplify it is the right term, but kind of give the key bullet points. Whereas, you know, when we're talking about it as the growth team or when I'm working with the strategy and finance team on something, that's when we're getting into kind of the nitty gritty. But the people who are joining these teams are people who are generally very strong from a quantitative standpoint and probably even better talking about these sorts of statistical significance concepts than I am. Not to get further into the weeds, but are there scenarios where you guys are running multivariate regressions and looking at statistical significance from an economist or econometric standpoint? Probably not multivariate, just because there's only so much time in the day. I mean, I'll do a fair amount of just, you know, simple kind of XY scatter plot, try to find the best fit curve and, you know, seeing if it's stat safe, just through a simple R squared or using something to find a, especially when we're looking at kind of projections for future quarters, trying to find relationships where I can say, if I spend X, we're going to get Y CPA or ROAS. 
my econ professors in college and especially my econ stats professors in college would say that it's not necessarily the strongest work in the world. But I think there's a certain degree where you have to adapt strong statistical concepts to make them functional and quick when you're working on a small team. But I think in the future, we're going to look at hiring people who will be focused on doing things like multivariate regression analyses. It's just right now in our growth stage, we're kind of just relying on myself and the finance and strategy team working on some loose concepts with just two variables or three yet sometimes. Yeah, it's hard to find that controlled environment on any marketing scenario that you could actually run a test like that. But in terms of running these tests with different pieces of creative and having multiple ads live at the same time, or just in the general mindset of moving quickly to adapt to what is going on on social, how do you adapt the traditional creative review process to have multiple pieces of creative or move quickly and then stay within brand guidelines? I have to give infinite amounts of credit to our brand marketing manager, Natalie. She and I work super closely and she just does an excellent job of sometimes taking random Slack messages or Instagram ads that are forwarded to her from myself and our co-founder, Jay, and turning them into creative briefs for our design team. So all the kudos in the world to her. I think a lot of it just comes down to a really collaborative process and committing to processes that are in place. So while it is sometimes just a random message over Slack or sending an Instagram ad, most of the time we do have a creative brief that we fill out to request for our creative team to make something. And I think what helps with that is it gives a clear idea of kind of what we're trying to test at that time. So that when we do go back and look and say, all right, this went out, what was the variable we were looking at? All right, this version of it went out, let's double down and just really focus on having the iterative process. So I think the key piece is really our collaboration, a clear brief process that you follow, and then having your own Natalie. <laughs> Though that's definitely hard to replicate. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with MeUndies, but mm-hmm. direct-to-consumer, awesome product. I was speaking with their director of marketing and he was telling the story of how they had originally set out to be the underwear brand that does anything but the showing skin and doing kind of the traditional underwear ads. And in doing their split testing and their performance marketing, they started to see that what worked was that more traditional, just showing people an underwear approach. And they weren't originally intent in going that direction, but they couldn't ignore the results that they're getting with that. Yep. Curious, have there been any learnings that are similar to where you were expecting one thing and saw something much different? Yeah, I hate to keep going back to my squiggles, but (laughs) I think, you know, with our new product launches, and I think this is something that we're still kind of testing, and also it could be broken down on an audience case by case basis, but we launched some ads initially that kind of followed the launch playbook that we had developed for our new flavor releases over the summer. And it was just, new flavor or a new product line, like get excited, just beautiful picture, beautifully designed out. We just weren't seeing the response rate that we expected to see. So we started churning out all these different things like, do we need to make this more emotionally appealing? Do we need to make this punchier? Do we need more quick cuts? Everything like that. And what we ultimately found was just putting the ingredients, even just basically listing out these ingredients on the ad was really engaging people. And I I think it's possibly because people are very ingredients focused and health conscious nowadays in our current environment. But we found that we just had much stronger results by making the ingredients the star in even a very simple, like low lift manner. And sometimes it's something great like that, where you find that the lower lift assets can be the ones that work out and you just end up having so much efficiencies for your creative team and it accelerates your testing process even further. So I think that was a recent one that we found. Another one that comes to mind is copy. So traditionally for a while, you have been told that especially on paid social, you're not supposed to have long copy. 
Like you want it to be quick and punchy and no one's going to read any copy below kind of the see more link. So we're seeing some drops in response to our ads back earlier this year. And our co-founder Jay said, oh, we used to run these really long form copy ads. Like maybe we should try these. So in the lens of trying to limit as many variables as possible, we just picked our top performing ad at the time, ran that old, super long form copy. I have no idea how anyone reads all of this in Instagram <laughs> and tested it, controlled the landing page, controlled the asset, controlled everything else. And we found that the long form copy was ultimately the winner. And we found upon further iterative testing, creating new versions of long form copy that there's a certain segment of our target audience is just really interested in reading basically the sort of five paragraph essay that you would write in high school on a piece of ad copy. So that was something that was really surprising to me. And I think it just shows that you can't always rely on best practice ultimately. And you need to keep testing these things and keep as many random variables in mind. And sometimes throwing something that seems crazy out there can get you a lot of results. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess kind of going against the grain of what everyone's saying makes you stand out a little bit. And there's obviously the people within the audience who that's going to resonate with. Yeah. And I do wonder if part of it comes down to the fact that we always say there's a decent component of education with our products. So I wonder if there are just certain people who are willing to read to educate themselves versus having to, you know, watch a video ad. And that's possibly a piece of it. But yeah, it was just something I found very interesting because it went against a lot of what I'd seen historically if I'd only gone off my past data. So I know we've been talking a ton about split testing and looking at data. I'm curious, in terms of nurturing new potential customers, how do you find the balance between getting in front of somebody enough times to be there when they're ready to make a purchase versus getting in front of them too much to where they get sick of seeing the marketing and opt out? I think it can really depend on the customer. I think one thing that's crucial is having a lot of variability in the ads that you're running so that you're not just showing the same ad to the same person a billion times. I think that induces brand fatigue a lot more quickly. So having different styles, having different types of ads. I think also just monitoring your frequency on platforms where you can cap the frequency. And then also, I think just being multi-platform is key and having, you know, remarketing set up on all the different platforms that you're running on and everything like that, because it's not only spreading and having multiple touch points across different channels, but also sometimes it's common nowadays to have new touch points at different parts of the funnel and have different platforms that are living as different parts of the funnel. So someone may see your ad first on Facebook, but not respond to it. And maybe they're just someone who never purchases off of Facebook, but they're going to be scrolling ESPN or the New York Times or something, and then they'll see your display ad and ultimately convert. So I think it's variety of ads so people don't get annoyed and then being smart about your cross-platform investment and remarketing setup in there. Is there any validity to this age-old seven touch points before somebody makes a purchase or is it too hard to track these days? I think it's totally dependent on the product and the brand and the price point. I think seven touch points would be a little expensive for a brand like us. But if you're talking about someone like purchasing a Tesla, then that's probably really efficient for them ultimately. I think boiling things down to any adages that are based on touch points or a certain quantity of how much you need to spend or impressions you need to show them. I just think that's flawed to some degree because every brand is different. Every product is different. Even more importantly, every customer is different. I'll have products where I need to get hit with ads 20 times and I'm still never going to purchase them. And then I'll have some products where I see an ad on Instagram and I'm immediately like, cool, I'm going to buy that right now. And sometimes it's not necessarily the control of how much that product costs in either case. It's just, I think this goes back to what I was saying about the fact that the hardest thing to control for is human psychology. So I think any of those sorts of adages are, I don't want to say outdated because I'm sure they're true in a certain number of cases and that's why they're still somewhat relevant. But I think it really depends on the brand, the product, and the individual that is engaging with the brand. 
Are there any offers or incentives that you found to be super effective in getting somebody over the hurdle or off the fence of being interested to actually making a purchase for the first time? Yeah, I think my team will, or the broader team will laugh at hearing this because we always joke that I would get rid of discounts completely if I could. And it hurts me inside every time I have to write a percent sign. I think something that we've tried to do is find a point where discounts make sense for both us and for the customer. Because you don't want to take such a hit on average order value that it becomes inefficient and doesn't make sense for you to ultimately be selling that product. But we also recognize that customers are to some degree trained to kind of expect discounts. And it's not just marketers anymore who just wait for the remarketing ad to give them the 15 or 20% off. We've actually done a lot of testing and discounting and ways to make it make sense. And I think bundling has been a really big thing for us, trying to give a more aggressive discount on a higher quantity of products. So we've put a lot of testing into that from the standpoint of what we're offering on ads, what we're offering on landing pages. We just released a new bundle builder on site recently. Things that are, where are we offering bundles in our email flow? Where are we doing cross-sell and upsell of multiple products within our checkout process and on site, even in like our add to cart drawer pop out? So I think we found bundles to be a good option for us, both from an existing increasing repeat purchase rate and ultimately lifetime value, but also from a customer acquisition standpoint. So I think we're pretty happy about how bundles have worked. And I think the other side of that, though, is recognizing that not, especially on the customer acquisition side, not everyone's going to want to commit on a bundle. So I think it's providing people the option of the one for a certain percent off or no percent off versus the two for X percent off and then three for Y percent off. So I think on the acquisition side, having some options, including bundles, has been an effective outcome for us. In terms of re-engaging customers with whether it's a bundle or trying to get them to repurchase, are there any tools or softwares that make your job easier or to help make that process more effective? Yeah. So when we're thinking about customer re-engagement, I am very against spending a single cent to reacquire a customer we already have the email of, if we possibly can. We do use some software like customer behavior monitoring software, like you know Hotjar, which helps us understand how our customers are engaging with our site and the tools that we have on there. But I think a lot of it has really just been kind of ongoing UX testing. And whether that's through the lens of, like I mentioned, the cart upsell and checkout process upsell and everything like that. But for actually bringing the customer back to site, I think our big focus has really been on email and SMS and doing a lot of work on both our automated flows and figuring out kind of campaigns, campaign cadence, campaign offers, mixing up, you know, fully designed out emails versus plain text emails. So I think the majority of our focus for customer re-engagements, as I would call it, has been through kind of our email and SMS as well as just creating a better site experience. And I do think something that has been key, especially for us, is product and new product releases is always a super important way to bring customers back because we're not a Casper where you're going to buy once and then not necessarily need to re-engage with the brand for five or six years. So when we release new products, we give customers more reasons to come back to try something new. So I think getting really nerdy, for lack of a better term, about our email and SMS, creating the best customer experience possible and giving ourselves opportunities to re-engage and offer new products to customers has been key. And then also just making sure that we're providing the best hydration products on the market and creating new flavors, new functions, everything like that has been crucial for customer re-engagement. In terms of re-engaging customers, I guess there's a lot of debate around organic social and if it has any value whatsoever. Where does organic social fit in your mind? Does it still have value? And if so, where does that fit within the sales funnel? So organic social technically falls under our brand team. So I'm not going to pretend to be the expert here. I think organic social always has value. 
I think brands nowadays, we aren't just products. People think of brands and the brands that they really love and they're passionate about. They think of them more because they're passionate about kind of the lifestyle and the aesthetic and the image and the brand voice. I mean, you think about all the pictures you see of like Wendy's Twitter account and all the responses that they have there. And, you know, Bonobos was another early example of really strong organic social engagement and customer experience through there. So I think there's a lot of brand building value. And, you know, while I am head of growth and, you know, I said earlier, everything we do is very direct response focused. I recognize that ultimately growing a brand, especially over a certain number of years, is not going to be totally focused on mid and bottom funnel engagement. So I think creating a lifestyle and a voice that customers engage with and are excited to engage with is only going to improve retention rates, which then only makes my life easier because I have to do less on the acquisition side of things. So I think there's a lot of value there. And I think as a brand grows, especially, there is a certain point where organic social and things like that can start contributing on the acquisition side of things because your friends are going to start liking posts and they're going to show up on your feed. They'll share posts with you that they like, things to get picked up, you know, in press. So I think regardless of the stage of your brand, there's a lot of value for organic social and kind of brand building and customer re-engagement. And then at a certain point of growth, there is that acquisition value as well. What advice would you give somebody looking to explore more robust A-B testing or sales funnel, more direct attribution approach in their customer acquisition efforts? Get very nerdy about your tagging, whether it's through your naming convention or anything you're doing within your UTMs. Make sure you agree on kind of an attribution scheme across any platforms that you're running on. I think that was super crucial for us and you know, a big area of focus for me as I joined the team. Make your data easily accessible to multiple people because people are going to be less willing to dig into data and to use it to power their decisions and their daily processes if it's challenging for them to parse through it. So having whether it's just back-end raw data that's easily accessible or data visualizations or anything like Tableau or Looker or even Google Data Studio, I think those are all crucial things to make your organization more data-driven. So we've got a few wrap-up questions. I think this has been a very insightful interview and I'd love to hear how a great brand like Hydrant is doing great things with their performance marketing that you are leading. So if you could go back and give yourself as you were just starting either your career or your role at Hydrant one piece of advice, what would it be? I would have probably committed to getting more comfortable with data even earlier in my career and getting even more technical with the data analyses and developing that skill set early on. I think it is something that would have been interesting to me, though on the flip side, I could also say I wish I'd gotten better and you know dedicated some time to learning the Adobe Creative Suite. Those sound like two very diametrically opposed things, but when I think about a lot of what I do on a day-to-day basis, it's data analysis and then also figuring out what we should be doing on the creative side. So I think developing technical skills, whether they're on the data side or the creative side, I think is valuable because especially in the startup space, you never just do one job and you never just do whatever is in your job description. You are most valuable when you're able to contribute in a ton of different areas and to learn things quickly. So I think prepping myself to contribute as much as I possibly could would be some advice or prep I'd give my younger self. If someone is aspiring to be a head of growth someday and doesn't quite have the knowledge or aptitude for data and data analysis, how would you recommend going to improve that skill set? Everyone learns in different ways. I'm a very hands-on learner. So for me, it was just forcing myself to try and figure things out. But I think more broadly, I would say, seek out people who do have that expertise and ask them for help and make it easy for them to help you. Come in with specific questions as much as you possibly can. 
but I'm a big believer in leveraging your network because I'm sure that anyone that you would be willing to give advice on your areas of expertise to them. So, you know, they'd be willing to give advice on their areas of expertise to you. So I think just kind of doing some digging on your own, doing some self-driven learning and whatever method is most applicable to you, and then asking your network for help would be key. I mean, I would also say it really depends kind of on the size of the brand. The other thing is you can also just bring on someone who is excellent at data to join your team. But I mean, if I'm thinking about building out a growth team, one of the early hires I probably would make would be a data analyst or someone who's very strong at the intersection of strategy and data. So whether it's developing that skill set yourself or surrounding yourself with the right team to kind of contribute in those areas, that's how I would think about it. What's your most recommended marketing or business book or podcast? How I Built This sounds super basic, but I still love it. I also read a lot of those kind of leadership lessons books from HBR. I have one sitting across from me that's leadership lessons from sports. And I think there's a lot that's applicable in business that you can take from sports. I mean, I'm biased. I'm a huge sports fan. So that's probably where I would lean on it. But I just read everything from everywhere. I also just read a ton of biographies, whether it's historical like generals or business leaders. So I think how I built this on the podcast side and then a lot of the HBR leadership lessons that are from people kind of outside of your area of expertise, I tend to find interesting seeing how you can kind of apply those lessons to what you're actually focused on. So where can listeners go to learn more about Hydrant and what you're up to? That's a great question. I would say drinkhydrant.com, spelled like it sounds. That's our site. We have a pretty active blog on there that really leans into that scientific DNA that I mentioned earlier. We also have our active organic social channels, I would say Instagram in particular. And our LinkedIn, we just recently put out our announcements on our new products and some of the science behind that. I'm very biased because I think LinkedIn at this point is my primary social media network. I don't know if that's sad. <laughs> but yeah, I would say our site blog, our organic social and our LinkedIn. And I'm also happy to you know answer any questions that anyone has through LinkedIn. Well, I know everyone was very excited about this interview and it did not disappoint. So thank you so much for your time. And it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hope you have a great rest of your day. And that will do it for our interview with Margaret. Hopefully you're coming away from this episode with some practical ways that you can improve your digital marketing ROI. We've had a few guests on recently speaking to performance marketing and the direct consumer space. And if you're liking these types of episodes or have a guest or topic suggestions, send me an email to alex at foodmarketingnerds.com. We want to hear what you have to say and shape our episodes to what you find most interesting. Don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. In other news, our downloads have continued to grow at about 25% month over month. And a lot of that comes from you sharing the podcast with your coworkers or friends within the industry. So thank you for spreading the good word and please consider subscribing if you haven't already. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next week, stay nerdy. Food Marketing Nerds is a production of Blue Bear Creative. For interview transcripts and other downloadable resources, head to foodmarketingnerds.com.